Um, oh, guys, I was re-listening to a recent episode, and I I found a, a huge mistake on my part, and I have to redact and and fix my mistake. It's enormous. Oh, no. I said when we were talking in the last one, which was Jess's, I said when talking about Marco being too important for his age, I said, who is he? Edward the fourth at Bosworth field. That's a mistake. Edward the fourth was Towton and Henry the seventh was Bosworth field. And this oh. is cataclysmically bad for me. I, you have no, I've thought about it for minutes. Hello. And thank you for tuning into this week's episode of writers group book club. We are a group of authors actively honing our craft while encouraging each other and our audience to just keep writing. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing dialogue and my latest submission for Milkweed Monarchy. We'll get right into that after this short sponsored message. Hey guys, I'll be taking the ad spot today to pass on some WGBC related announcements. Because the show is starting to pick up steam and we're starting to get a lot of new people on the channel. Just so everyone is aware, uh, and if you're in a position to contribute to the show, Jess and I have been posting our drafts at patreon.com slash WGBC podcast. You can read them there and keep up with everything we talk about here. Lance will be posting some of his world building work up there with uh, in-world maps and hand-drawn artifacts. So you can really nerd out on rivers and mountain ranges and stuff with him. Also, sometime in the next couple episodes, we'll be posting our first watch party here on whatever platform you're already listening to. um, And we'll be posting more. over on Patreon, so if you haven't watched The Hair in a while, check back in a few weeks, and it might be up there. Um, the subscription is 3 bucks a month, and it'll go directly into giving us more time to produce better content. All right, uh, that's it, uh, so let's talk about dialogue. So there's something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, and uh, it says this. The more you learn about a subject, the more you realize you don't know about that subject, and then the less confident you become in that subject matter altogether. Um, so I think at a certain point, you probably come up the other side and start gaining confidence again. But I am not at the other side yet. So I'm going to talk about uh, how I write dialogue. And if you don't do it that way, no problem. Um, so how I approach writing dialogue. The first thing I do, and this kind of ties back to our last uh, episode last week about atmosphere. Um, is I decide what style the scene should be in uh, and how I want the reader to read it in their head. For this part, um, I really wanted the opening to give off the American Midwest suburban barbecue dinner party episode in a sitcom. So uh, I watched some videos with people speaking in Midwestern accents and went for it. I tried to get my characters to say dang and geez and all those classic Minnesota Fargo catchphrases. And I wanted it to be like a really cookie cutter sitcom scene with, um, you know, like the talking heads and not all that much uh, scene direction. So I didn't really describe much except for uh, making characters like put their hands on their hips before a punchline or whatever. Um, When I read it back, it gave that effect in my head, but I wasn't sure it was going to land. So I went ahead and named the chapter Midwest just to make it more obvious. Um. I find it useful to be lighter in, in the narration in your first draft because then you have lots of opportunities within the dialogue to go back and slip in details for later on. And it makes the reader focus on the clues that you do give them. Like in this story, I have to talk about the weather a lot 
So I made the characters talk about it in their dialogue. Uh, they complain about the cold. And one character tells the other to close the door when they come in the house. Just not let the cold in. And then later on, I get the narrator to say that it was a warm and sunny day out. But I'd hardly had any narration throughout the whole part. So I think it makes it more obvious that that's something significant that uh, the reader should notice. Um, there's no, obviously, hard and fast rule about how much narration to use. Um, and in the first part of my story, I wasn't aiming for the same uh, effect. And I wanted the story to be more like a kind of medieval fantasy movie, like Lord of the Rings. So I included more narration to like kind of slow out down the scenes and, uh, and hit that effect. Um, since I like my scenes to be my dialogue heavy scenes to read like a screenplay, um, I also introduce the scene very briefly and let the reader be their own director and paint the picture of the place themselves. I only want to tell the story with dialogue and brief narration that should almost come across like scene direction. A good way to get away with brief narration uh, is to not talk about the setting. And you can do that easily if you choose a very generic setting that doesn't need much introduction. If I tell you you're in a high school hallway with a jock, a cheerleader, and a nerdy science teacher, I don't really need to get into more detail than that. Like You already know more than I'm going to be able to describe to you. Um, you know what the characters look like, the posture of the people, their clothes, what the hallway looks like, uh, the floor, the ceiling, the colors, the lockers, everything. Like, I don't need to describe any of that to you. You already did it. You're the director. I just wrote the script. Um, but if I tell you the floor is slippery or something, that should stand out to you. And when the character slips on the floor later, maybe you'll remember. Um, you can completely describe the hallway if you want. And if you want to be the director, like fill your boots. I just don't um, often go that way. And I let the reader be the director. Um, another thing to try to limit or think about is how many times you say, like, address which character is speaking, like said Deborah or whatever. Um, I err on the low side for sure and try to do it as infrequently as possible um, to the point where if in the conversation I don't really care who said the line, like you say, hey, look over there. I don't care who said it. So I will let the reader be confused and just never address who said it because um, I don't think it matters. Uh, you can also kind of be logical about it. Like if Bob and Shirley are talking and Shirley says, hey, Bob, you don't have to say said Shirley. And you can probably even skip introducing Bob's response because obviously Bob's going to be the one answering. And then every now and then you have to sprinkle them back in to keep people on track. Um, the best way, obviously, to get to avoid saying said Shirley is to give Shirley her own voice. Uh, in this book, the main characters are Ada Harris, Princess Maria Posa, and Maggie Harris so far. And Ada has a British accent, Maria has a Spanish one, and Maggie has a Midwestern one. And that's not by accident. This is going to make it super easy for me to distinguish my characters later on. Um, if you go for an accent, we've talked about this before, you can overdo it. So I'll tell you my secret to how to not overdo it is just abandon it at some points. Like I stopped probably by chapter four doing the accent. And if I did my job right, you should already know kind of what Maggie Harris is all about. You shouldn't need to be reminded about it every time. And I'll pick it back up whenever I feel like it. Um, so that's it. Decide on your atmosphere. Try to keep the narration brief and uh, give your characters a distinct voice. And if you can do all that, you'll end up with some pretty great dialogue. 
I got a lot of comments about what you said, Pat. Um, I thought this was really great. I didn't, what I, I think maybe what, what I definitely was missing, what some other people were missing is when we talked about our, in our world building episode, we've talked about doing research and what you mentioned today is something I hadn't considered doing research about the individual voice of the different characters. So you actually are going and researching what a Midwestern barbecue might look like. And that's actually a good point. Cause when I was reading what you sent, it immediately populated in the background with like that seventies show or something like really like a generic Midwestern setting, like you said, which is exactly what you intended. Uh, so I really like to see that. Uh, and it's something that I'll have to add as well, researching the voice I want to, I want to have. Uh, and one thing I liked as well is that you said that you can go really light on the narration. What's nice about this as well is that if you make changes in the future and you have to go sprinkle in those changes in a revision, you can just go add them in. Whereas if you're already heavy on narration and you start going in to sprinkle things back in that are narration based, because it's easier to add in narration than to change the dialogue, then you're risking having too much narration. Like I write a bit more narration. So now if I add more narration, I'm going to be worried about boring people. But since you're mostly dialogue and less narration, you can always go back in and add narration and it's not going to be boring because you're not at that threshold yet. Uh, I like how characters, you said characters complaining about relevant things like the weather. It, you can, by having characters complain through dialogue, you can address something without making it be, without like pointing it out directly, right? Like the weather. Uh, you can also have characters complain about each other or talk about each other behind their backs. And then you're doing, you're doing two things like uh, your, your, your character, one character talking about another character to a third character. You're, you're showing a lot of depth about what these people think of each other instead of just the narrator telling you what they're about. Uh, and I thought that it was interesting how you uh, gave a separate voice to all of your characters, uh, which is which is definitely really important. And a lot of people talk about that. And I like that you made a concerted effort for it. And I also like the last thing I'll say is that you said you changed the 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 kind of the narration and dialogue uh, percentage breakdown based on how you want us to feel for each part which is really interesting. And I really like that because it does give you a different feel for all of your different parts. And I feel like most people probably keep a consistent percentage throughout their whole book. So I like that you change it. I think that's unique. Yeah. Dialogue is one of those really interesting things that is an extremely important tool to a writer. But like I was revisiting my copy of On Writing by Stephen King, which I talked about recently, and he goes into dialogue a lot. And he has kind of an interesting perspective because he likens it to um, how some musicians like have just naturally have like a like perfect pitch. Um, he said some writers just have that ear for dialogue and he, he thinks it's almost an innate thing, but like all things, right. You can develop it. And one of the ways to develop it is to like have lots of conversations and really pay attention and listen to how conversations go between people. Um, one of the complaints I have when I read dialogue sometimes is that, you know, it has to be a little bit more crafty and nuanced than just info dumping about the world or, you know, an important thing that's about to happen. Um, because the characters that are in that story, you know, you wouldn't just go up to a random person or like whoever and tell them the life story of this neighbor 
you know, like it, it has to be natural. So that is a very hard thing to develop. And I mean, I take my hat off to all the writers out there that have that natural ear for dialogue because it's it's not easy. I think narration probably comes easier to people than than writing dialogue for sure. Yeah, I think like it would definitely be hard to write as casual dialogue if you're really planning your story. Because where I'm just letting my characters do whatever they're going to do, the dialogue comes super easy because it can be as natural as I let it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or like some of the most interesting dialogue exchanges for me are, you know, someone who's maybe trying to get information out of another person and the other person's like oblivious or they have to do it in a way that's like not obvious. Like they have to be a little bit more manipulative. Um, I'm trying to think of an example, but one's not coming to me right now. But yeah, like uh, you can have really, really fascinating moments between characters that you just couldn't have in narration um, that shows up in dialogue. So yeah, it's super, super important part of, you know, being a good writer. You know, when I'm planning my chapters, because I, I plan out my chapters and my whole book. And when I'm planning out my chapter, I'm always like, okay, well, this is going to be easy, easy, easy. The chapter will be 3,000 words. And we'll be out of here. And then the chapter is 10,000 words because it's all dialogue. I'll be like, okay, well, I got to add this part in. But it's got to be interesting and, and riveting and we're going to have some character development in it. So obviously I'm going to use dialogue. And I'm using, I, I have a lot of dialogue in the book. Um, and then the dialogue goes way longer than I expect because people are, are angry about it or they're agreeing or they're having an argument or they're negotiating. And that's all interesting. Yeah, sometimes really it just takes stuff. a lot of lines to get. Where yeah, you go. it's and it's it's funny because a reader would rather read like twenty lines of that than three lines of, of uh, of just narration, right? But it still takes a lot. You still have to spend the time to write all those all that dialogue, right? It's probably like anything else. Like even when you're writing, like a paragraph, you want to have like different like sentences. Yeah, like exactly. you want to have different like bouts of dialogue, bouts of narration, mm-hmm. short conversations with like quick lines back and forth long lines that like somebody's having a rant or or whatever Uh, yeah it's all variety i think absolutely and like you said different characters speak differently they do And, and i really like what you said about looking it up that's something that i should do i think is like look up like just think of 10 different people that are 10 different celebrities watch them like talk for two minutes straight and then use their voice for 10 of my characters. And that way I'll have a, something to latch onto to make them sound distinctive. And then they would, everyone would sound distinctive. And I don't know, I think that might, that might be a good strategy to, to, uh, to give characters unique voices. And you don't even have to hold on for very long. Like as long as you can do the impression for like an hour, even if you can't do it tomorrow, you can forget, you can drop that and bring it back later for sure um well i guess i'll do my little summary take it away (laughs) so in this part of milkweed monarchy we abandon princess maria posa and meet maggie harris she and her husband don are at the dinner party with two couples deborah who's hosting the party takes the ladies upstairs and the men stay down and watch the game um deborah shows uh them her son brandon Brandon's in a chrysalis and has changed color, meaning that he will hatch soon. Deborah is asking for advice on whether she thinks, whether the uh, other women think that her son has gone moldy. But Maggie 
shares confidentially later with Don on the flight home that she thinks Deborah was just showing off Brandon and bragging. Uh, a day later, Don and Maggie wait around as their son Mitch nears hatching. Mitch eventually does hatch, but not before Brandon. A fact that Maggie points out and Mitch is disappointed about as he feels that he has let down his mother. Maggie is let down as she and Don have just finished discussing the importance of a butterfly to be the first North to secure a new home and a job in a new territory. Mitch then confesses that he doesn't feel that he is supposed to go North and would rather go South. Maggie dramatically says that if he flies South, it will kill his grandmother as she is a religious woman. Mitch does go North, but he returns the next day. Maggie drags Mitch over to Deborah's house when Mitch mentions that Brandon has also returned from the North. The boys claiming that it was too cold and there was no milkweed. Deborah and Maggie insist they try again and say uh, that they will be up the next day to check on their progress. The next day, when Maggie and Deborah go north, they find the forest littered with dead butterflies, uh, including their sons, after an overnight frost. Maggie also sees a flock of geese fly by overhead. Uh, Upon return, Dawn leaves in a fit, and despite losing their children, none of the adult butterflies are interested in hearing what Maggie has to say, which is that the boys might be right after all, and that they should start moving south. With Maggie turned away from the church pastor and vague advice from a gosling to start moving south if she doesn't want to freeze to death, Maggie goes after Don for one last try to convince anyone to come with her. Don and Maggie finally together acknowledge the death of their son, and Maggie tells him that she's leaving to go south. And that's where we leave this part. Jess, you want to go first? Sure. Um, okay, sorry. I'm just opening my notebook. Um, I The first thing I noticed is that there was already a change or a softening in tone um, for Maria Posa's part um, because that was one comment I had depending on the audience of this book. And, um, and we can talk more about that after. Um, um, and, and specifically like the young adult audience and like who it's for or if this is like actually turning into a book that's more for like adult audiences and listen if any other like listeners are experiencing that problem it's okay um Tolkien was gonna write Lord of the Rings for kids and he's like I actually can't um so you can change your mind for sure about that um I'm enjoying the language flourishes in the narration um King Alfred's last words lost in the flapping of wings very interesting image. So I like that we're getting a little bit more of those um, those moments in the narration. I feel like I'm learning a lot more about this world. Um, Maria Posa is showing herself to be clever. She's very curious. She wants to know more. She seems like she has um, more curiosity than her sisters or her family members that, you know, are, are making fun of her a little bit. So it's good that she's cast kind of in the role of underdog. That's good for a main character in um, a young adult setting. Um, I'm also enjoying details about the world. So we're getting information about what happens when a butterfly goes into a chrysalis. There seems to be like an element of competition here about who can kind of come out of their chrysalis first. So I feel like um, this maybe will relate back to Maria Posa in a way um, like maybe they want her to hash out of her chrysalis first or something. Um, There's like an importance or like a, a social capital attached to that. 
And I think there, especially in this section, like there was a lot of foreshadowing. So the adults, of course, don't seem so concerned with the cold, um, which gives me the sense, of course, because like, of course, in, you know, children's literature and young adult literature, the evil lies often with the adults not being able to recognize that, you know, the change is going to come. And they're going to be the ones left behind because they're so set in their ways, you know, not listening to the children or the vulnerable members of society because um, they just don't have the capacity to do it anymore. They've like lost their imagination and stuff. Um, So, yeah, I think like this is good. It's following and I'm not using trope in a derogatory term. I'm using it just um, in a way that, you know, certain stories and certain genres like you have to hit beats um and so the beat of the foreshadowing um came through very strongly for me here um so what i'm understanding about this world is that there are different sets or sects of butterflies um all over and i'm not sure if this is just contained in north america i don't think it is um but in this part in the parts of this world and they all have very distinct ways of speaking. Um, but I think the, um, thread that's running through these different cultures is the faith or the belief system in, um, uh, this prophecy or this idea of like having to go North and then the children are being born basically saying that that's wrong. And okay. And just a word about the Harris family, you know, learning a lot about their little customs. They don't have much, but they make it work. I always I always have a soft spot for characters that are like that. And w- would Mitch be having maybe, maybe this is a hot take for the end, maybe Mitch will have, or Maria Posa will have a similar feeling to what Mitch was feeling when he came out of his chrysalis that, oh no, like that what I've been told wasn't right. Like that's kind of when I had my transformation, that was the information, the cosmic information that was downloaded to me. Um, So maybe a bit of foreshadowing in that as well. And so what we're also starting to see, um, and we got a lot of conflict in that first, very first section of the story that Pat shared where there's a literal battle, but now we're seeing conflict um, in society between individual intuition and like the pressure of a belief system and how that can kind of like have devastating consequences so there's spiritual pressures um person to person or peer pressure as well as that like internal knowing um and then of course there's the reveal um where the mother finds out that she was actually wrong and she you know unfortunately loses her son, um, which is like devastating. And so she's now living with this truth that her son was right. She was wrong. But when she even goes to the pastor and tries to talk about it, he is saying, well, no, like you, even though you've seen that with your own eyes, that can't be correct. So that's like a very, very tough thing. Um, and, and just shows like that level of like pressure or, you know, how hard it would be to kind of defy, what is set out there she's kind of on her own even her husband doesn't really believe her um so that's like kind of a very interesting spot to be 
questions I would have though. So if this is a young adult book and we have, you know, Maria Posa being young, part of me would be more interested in seeing what would happen if Mitch, this newly hatched butterfly, learning to be a butterfly and, you know, actually it may be surviving and like having the perspective of that younger person as opposed to turning the perspective over to the adults. Um, so that may be like, and obviously I'm not trying to write your book for you, but I was just thinking to myself, oh, like that would be interesting. Um, but yeah, like we can, we can talk about that and maybe your perspective on like whether this is going to be like a young adult book or like more of like a adult fantasy book, like it's changing, but that was kind of something I wanted to bring up because if we're keeping like the young, like what a cool foil that would be for Maria Posa is like kind of almost a contemporary, um, but up North. Yeah. But overall, like I really enjoyed it. I think it was good. I think you're, yeah, like I said before, you're hitting the beats you need to hit. Um, there was a lot of good foreshadowing and I enjoyed seeing a different part of the world as well. So yeah. I'll think about that Mitch thing because I'm going to have more characters. Like it's more than just the two. No, so for sure. Have more young characters. Okay. But that's like kind of a really cool setup though for a character. It's mm. like, I've just hatched out of my chrysalis. Like what is the world like being this new thing? Like we haven't had that perspective yet and maybe we'll get it with Maria Posa. Right. Cause like you're setting that up for, she's eating a lot. Like she's ready to to become like a chrysalis and, and be a butterfly. So we might have that perspective with her, but yeah, I was just, I, in my head, I was like that, that would kind of be interesting. Yeah. Good thought. No, but obviously, and, and this is a line we always use. We're not trying to write the book for you. Only you know how this book ends and where all the characters go. But I wanted to just bring that up um, just for your notes. And like, that's a, totally a draft two problem you don't need to go back and rewrite anything or change anything you can just keep going forward so um pat i was uh, i've got a bunch of comments about you what you wrote i thought it was awesome as always and i'll just dive right in i thought that the transition to a midwestern american home was really well done actually was wondering i was like are they just humans and this is like an interlude or something and then you said instead of the punch bowl, you said the nectar punch bowl. And I was like, oh, there's still, it's just really well done. Like you, you put me in the setting so hard that it took me like two paragraphs, two short paragraphs to realize. And it was really funny how the, 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 the parents and the kids were like, oh, you kids are lazy. You don't want to work. And then he's like, but dad, like you were, you call he's like, but dad, like, that's not true. We want to work. He's like, oh, back in my day, he's like, I've never, I've, I've never missed a day of work. He's like, you called in sick twice last week. It was really funny. Um, you know, we all have selective memory. So I thought that was funny. Um, I really like that this, the geese going south and everyone's like, what? I've never seen that before. It's just what I really liked is about this part again, as before, is that you constantly remind us that the time scale is super different from human time scale where like, um, even like when what's her name was like, oh, I converted, you know, weeks ago. Like that's like half her life, right? I really like that. Uh, yeah, and I, I, uh, I really like all these changes are happening over the space of a couple days, if, if if even that in this in this part. But it's not that. But it's it's really action packed for the butterflies, and it seems kind of like it's fast paced and stuff. But and it, and it is. 
but for the butterflies, it's, it's it's a bit longer than it is for us, right? I thought the the like all the 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 butterflies who died from the frost. I thought that was really impactful. You wrote that in a really impactful way, and it was really like sad. It was it was like we when we see it because we see it from the butterflies' perspective, and basically they walked into a bunch of their kids being dead. It was horrible, and I think that you really uh, hit that. Um. And I'm just trying to like imagine that as a parent, right? The the butterflies go up to do what they're supposed to do, and then the parents go in the morning and they're all dead, right? It's crazy. Um and before I, I want to talk a bit more about the horror aspect of that. But before I want to keep talking about the time aspect, because I really like that. You know, I feel like there's a lot of books where we have elves and stuff who live for tens of thousands of years. And so we're in fiction writing, like we'll often, I think, get used to characters who live on different time scales, but usually it's the other way around. Usually they're really long time scales. And what you've done is you've written a story where the time scales are drastically shorter than, than human time scales. And I just think that's super cool. Uh, that's why I keep talking about it. Um, I think that the, the pastor and the parent teacher association part really showed how ingrained their current thinking is. And how much how much of a shift this is in their thinking uh, that for them to think that they might go south instead of north, like Deb Deb would seem like a crazy person, uh, and uh, for what she's proposing and what she's saying happened, and the fact that nobody would take her serious, even though the evidence is like a one day trip away, nobody nobody would even go visit. Uh, so I, I I thought that was that was well done. Um, I thought you have good foreshadowing for your like Protestant Catholic type of split. Um, I think that your foreshadowing, I don't know if this falls into hot takes, but I think your foreshadowing that there will be heightened inter-religion tension. The reason I think this is a bit, is a bit niche, but Deb and her husband got married and she was of a different uh, practice beforehand. And she converted. And that wasn't a huge issue. They're just normal people in the community. But now, now these weeks later, she's talking to the pastor and she's like, well, you know, I think that maybe we should go south. And he's like, you're holding on to like, 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 like heretical beliefs. So um, it, it feels like, like things would have been more accepting a couple of weeks ago, but now there's some heightened tension that might mean that things are going to be a little less accepting than they were before. I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but that was the vibe I got. I thought that the Gordy reveal was uh, was really cool. I do think you could remove you wouldn't you could take some parts of it out. The reason is Gordy when they overhear Gordy's mom talk, you're gonna you're giving everything to the reader, right? You're telling us, well, everyone's gonna die because the frost is gonna come, and these guys are all gonna die. Remember the last butterfly you made friends with, and all that. It what I would like if you removed it is that it would make it more ominous. Like if you took out what the mother goose said, we would still have all the same information. We would still know that the frost is coming is going to kill them and that the geese know, but it would be less spelled out. And I think it would be more ominous because the butterflies would still have that kind of mystery. The reader knows what's going to happen either way because we've had seasons before, uh, but that's just one thing to think about. Okay. No, I like that suggestion. I, um, you know, you're always in a dialogue scene, like looking for a way to exit the scene. Absolutely. So that was kind of what I was doing with that. It wasn't to try to explain it further. So you're probably right. Like I was trying to just get the mom to say, oh, you got to buzz off. 
<laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's something to fix likely. It's so if you want to, you, you can sit on it. I would say it's a draft two problem. I wouldn't do anything now. Okay. Uh, I also thought I was also wondering: Is Gordy supposed to be a Canadian stereotype? Oh yes. Okay, because that was pretty obvious. I was like, this guy definitely likes Rush. <laughs> um. So yeah, that was that was uh, that was really good. Um, so one thing is Maggie and Deb were like pretty level headed, even though they just had their children die and are now believe effectively in the end of the world as far as they're concerned. So I'm wondering now, I, I don't actually know. Right. But like, so do you, like, I feel like the op like like a person who had gone through that in the span of like one single day they would either be like horrified and melt down and just not be functional for weeks on end or maybe like some people would you know like you they would just get more defeated and defeated but keep pushing on because you have this mission now that you have to save the rest of the people right and that's i think what you're getting at with like uh and that's i think where you're getting at but I'd like to see you. I know it's a kid's book, right? Well, it's not a kid's book, but it's like a it's 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 more on the YA side at this point. But I I think that you don't have to hesitate. Like you could make them more horrified if you wanted to, uh, which is just a thought. I don't know if you were hesitating because of the the age range thing, but I think that would be that would be okay. So I was trying to give like Deborah that role. Um, I I could probably ham it up a bit more, but I think Maggie's like acting on shock and like pure adrenaline that's that's the other thing yeah like you have yeah um that's a good point i think i'm i guess what i'm getting at is uh i would like to see it addressed at one point like you could have maggie have crazy eyes so then even though she's she's acting being really proactive and doing stuff you can tell it's because of shock and adrenaline like just something like that right um just, just, uh, just one idea. Um, and then I, last thing is I really like how you say they fluttered over there instead of walked every time. I know it's so obvious if it's just a constant little reminder that they're butterflies. I think if I was writing this, I would have said walked like half the time, just forgetting. And then, but you get fluttered. I just love that. You say fluttered every time. It's a constant reminder and it's just a nice touch. And At first, last... I was trying to choose different ways to say fluttered, but then I'm like, screw it. I'm going to have to say it so many times. I'll just yeah. lean into it and say fluttered every time. But think about it. We say words like walk and said, like they walked, they said. We say it all the time. And it's not repetitive. They're just normal words, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think in your book, fluttered is going to be one of those words. It's just how it goes. Uh, and I think that's really cool. And so the last thing I'll say is this was really emotionally impactful. And I really wasn't expecting that. Um, Cause I didn't know what was going to, I mean, we know winter's coming. We didn't, but I definitely didn't anticipate like basically like a, like a, like a mass death of teenagers, which is like kind of what happened. Right. Um, and it was pretty impactful. So I think you did a good job with that. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Great notes guys. Thanks a lot. I, I um, I think I, you pretty much got what I was throwing down, which is great. Um, awesome. the next one's going to be, I was thinking about it still while you're talking. I think the next one's going to be a kid again. So I think it's okay. Cause I, I wanted to do 
like the two things I wanted to accomplish with this was one show the like intergenerational conflict like you said yeah and very clear and how, it was like, very well done I tried to mirror like the current one between like boomers and Gen Z and millennials of like I nailed climate change um Jobs. about oh the no one wants to work I, I tried to squeeze in like a little bit of like homophobia from the church and uh anyhow and then um also show like the resistance of everyone to to accept that like the end was coming or whatever i thought that was really clearly i didn't say that in my comments but the resistance of people to believe like the people making fun of them that's rough everyone like at the end when like everyone's making like those people are fluttering by and they say oh you're like oh feeling chilly down there ha 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 and it's like these are your neighbors and their children died yesterday and you're just making fun of them fluttering by like that was that sucks you know so like, yesterday really like impactful. like two or three days is probably like six months or a year right mm. at least because so yeah. you were saying how they didn't have time to grieve or whatever but it's supposed to seem that's like it's true. been months then i think if that's the case i mean it would have been months but because if yeah i think i think the butterflies the live for like a month oh then it would be yeah but yeah so then it would be right so i would say don't then i just need one sentence to do a time skip for me like i went home for a whole hour and and and, and mourned oh yeah a i can even have like deborah hour. say it to her husband just be like she hasn't even gone home for a minute yet or whatever yeah exactly like, like i spent that whole afternoon something 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 yeah, exactly. Like, and you, she can be like an hour is customary, but I cried for three hours. Oh, that's yeah, like that's a said. good one. That's a good one. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so, do we have options for the watch party, or what do you guys think for that? Oh, I have a hot take before we move on. To the oh, you have party. hot takes. I have do a the hot, hot take. take. So, Mitch and Brandon both woke up. And what's the first thing they said when they woke up? I'm cold. It's chilly. I think that what they said first was, I have a feeling that we oh, should yeah. go south. I mean, mm -hmm. people don't just all get the same feeling at the same time to do something that's going against the grain. I think there's something going on here. I don't know if we're talking prophecy or... Maybe, you know, like maybe like generation wide instinct activated. Yeah, exactly. Right. So like the, you know, like it's kind of like how tomato plants, when the days hit a certain length, they start turning, they start like growing more tomatoes because they know that they're going to, that the plant will die. So they need to produce more seeds. And so it's probably something like that. Right. But to them, this is just prophecies, <laughs> right? Like they don't care about evolutions and, and, and stuff like that. Right. So I was just thinking, like, definitely thinking there's something going on there. So you're right. I guess it's an evolutionary thing. But it's interesting. I really caught on. I latched on to that. Why did everyone wake up with the same feeling? I don't wake up in the morning with the same feeling as other people. So Have you read this? Oh, my God. I'm, I guess I'm such a Stephen King little bitch. But have you read The Stand? Or do you know no. about The Stand? It's like, this might be triggering for some people because we just went through a pandemic. 
But basically, there's like a flu pandemic that wipes out 99%, like 99.7% of the human population. And there's like a handful of people left in North America. And everyone starts waking up with a feeling of, I either have to go to Colorado. I think it's Colorado. It's like they either all go to Colorado or Las Vegas. So like oh, it, it starts and ones in the desert. yes. So it starts to like div- like people just get this feeling to like I have to go here or I have to go here, and like people start getting divided. So it's giving that major Stephen King energy. Mm, good. Nice. Yeah. Mysterious. Is there a sick reveal at the end? Oh, I don't know yet. If you want to, oh okay. Oh, I thought you were talking about the stand. I am. Yeah. If okay, oh. well, it's like literally. Like there's the the Bible, right? Like you go to like um like a book, whatever library, and it's like the Bible, and like the stand is like longer than that. So if you have the patience to read like two thousand pages of work, yeah, it's friggin' awesome. It's unadaptable. The book is two thousand pages long. Yeah, it's like an insanely long. long. Let me see how actually. I'm just gonna look it up on Audible now because I tried listening to it on Audible and I was like, I don't, I I will be listening to this for a year. Um. I just finished. Um, well, my, the uh, the Revolutions podcast. Mike Duncan. I don't know if you've heard of that. He did a three year podcast. Like it took him three years to get through the Russian Revolution, and it's fu- finally Lenin just died. Oh my god! Russian history, fascinating. Oh yeah, it was crazy. I'm He's spent like three episodes on like one day of Russian Revolution history. He's like, wow. all this just keeps happening. I, uh, I'm listening to an audiobook about the War of the Roses, which is why I found out the mistake I made in the last podcast. Oh, nice. oh I love the War of the Roses. That was my Tudor romance story. Hello. After Henry VII gets in power. Hello. Hello. After Bosworth Field. Yes. Not Towton. Well, what about um, <laughs> Elizabeth? What did you think about Elizabeth? Have you, you got to watch the um, the White Princess on Stars. It's all about her perspective on that because they were basically nice. like forced into marriage. Oh yeah, uh, Elizabeth of York. I thought you meant Elizabeth, Elizabeth of York. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Although I I've heard that I I'm not there yet in my book, but I've heard that they had like a just a normal happy marriage. Even they did. They ended up the having circumstances a normal happy are marriage. pretty. Yeah, it's, which is like you look at the story, you're like, well, I killed your brother in battle. And I think he hanged his other brother. He's like, and I guess now we're going to get married so that we can patch all this war stuff over. Well, they were like like, from the opposites. They were from the opposite sides. Yeah. Like that is crazy where it's like, you were killing my ancestors. I was killing yours. Like it cancels out, I guess. (laughs) Like (laughs) anyway, guys, um, the stand is 50 hours long in audiobook format. So if any if anyone wants to t- take that on the chin uh, it pride and prejudice is uh, i'm just looking it up here pride and prejudice is not that long pride and prejudice is only like nine hours so russian revolution just did a episode 101 <laughs> crazy so yeah so we won't be doing watch party for the stand or listen party rather because that would be insane um, but, um, a few weeks ago I suggested on the podcast to Pat that, um, after defending Sahara, um, which would kind of tie into what I'm working on, 
I suggested to Pat that Watership Down was likely a similar-ish um, type of story to what he's currently writing. Um, for those of you who don't know, Watership Down is a story about a warren of rabbits and one of the rabbits wakes up after a prophetic dream that his warren's going to die. And so they have to move to a different, like to find a different home, basically. Um, and so kind maybe, so young adult content may be similar to what Pat's doing. And then, you know, I went on my big Sahara rant about how it's actually like a masterpiece and was a, apparently a large part of my childhood. I mean, probably should talk to someone about that. Um, maybe a bit unhealthy, but um, that we would perhaps do a watch party of Sahara. And then we're still deciding on one we could maybe do for Lance. But basically what it would be is the three of us sit down, we talk a little bit about the movie, and then we all hit play at the same time on air, and we just have reactions to what's happening in the film. Um, it's very fun. Like, obviously, we're going to come at it from, like, a writer's angle as well. Um, both of these films are adapted from books. Um so we can talk about that as also, but you're still going to get that content of us, you know, coming at it from the perspective of, of being aspiring writers. So it sounds like fun. Sounds awesome. Yeah, I'm super down. Cool, cool, cool. Well, I guess we'll have a battle royale for what film we're going to do. I'm kind of keen on Watership Down now, but we could have more options too. Watership know. Down um, for a lot of people is traumatizing. I'm going to be honest with you that like I was telling Lance was like a center point library classic for me growing up. So um, and one, one of the ones I watched in rap fascination kind of like with Bambi where it's like you're a little kid and something terrible happens like on screen and you just have to watch it again and again and again. No one else, just me. Okay. So great. you have to you, exposure, uh, exposure therapy yourself. <laughs> you talked about um fern gully for mine yes I also like fern gully. I have scary memories of fern gully i feel like that was a really creepy one the oil monster was horrifying in that movie yeah that just chomping the trees the whole movie oh yeah yeah and he's got like a weird song that was a good one yeah yeah totally it's super weird i did really i did just fern gully i'm just i'm just bringing up the discord here so i could see which crazy ideas i had um for Pat, I said Fern Gully, Never Ending Story, The Iron Giant, which I would be so down to watch. I just watched um, that on an airplane. Oh, did you did you watch it recently? Yeah, I did. Frig. I'm due a rewatch on that. I um, think I've probably watched it a hundred times. Also, Land Before Time. Oh, is the Iron Giant equivalent to your Sahara? Or my Sahara? I feel like um for renting it too many times from uh the movie store my equivalent would be like pokemon movie really rented that a lot of times Solid that's choice. interesting or the episodes too because they would just have a dvd of like a season mm. and we didn't have cable so we just rent pokemon over and over actually they had dvds of like an episode now that i'm thinking about it what it was just like one episode yeah on there's DVD? like one or two episodes i'm pretty sure wild I'm not pretty. I'm not very picky. I think that I'm gonna go towards whatever movie has the has a. You know, I'm like climactic ending, plot twists, unexpected endings. 
Okay. Right? Well, Tying things together with a bow. That's what I want. I want to end. I want lots of complicated things. And then the ending is perfect because it ties everything together with a bow. We'll okay. pick one like that for years. Cool. So why don't we do, okay. Why don't we do the two classics? We'll do Watership Down and we'll do Sahara. And then we're going to pick one for Lance. And maybe we'll even do a poll like on Reddit or something for nice. Lance. Yeah, we'll do a poll. We'll do a poll. And um, we'll we'll go with that. Sweet. Watership Down it is for the, for the first one, eh? Or Sahara first. What do you guys think? I'm more excited for Sahara. Okay, okay, let's Sahara. do that one. I'm, I'm trying to. I feel like I need to be the tiebreaker. Okay. We have some yeah, two very right, different cause... opinions about this movie. <laughs> I hope we don't give anyone nightmares. Sahara is great. Um, yeah, it's not that great, but it's fine. It's <laughs> well, we're it's gonna have a fun time a watching watch party. it. Exactly. Yeah. Can I pick National Treasure? It's pretty awesome. I think it's too similar to Sahara. It's too similar, yeah. Okay, maybe that's why I was thinking about it. I think we talked. I, about it I'm down for Last Samurai. Last Samurai is pretty sweet. Okay. It might be three hours long. I have to check that. Okay, okay. If it's three hours long, then we'll watch something else. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Writers Group Book Club. Check us out over at Patreon.com/slash/WGBCPodcast, and remember to just keep writing. Have you seen Watership Down? Nope. That's one of the oh. rabbits, right? Yes. Did you guys say it was also... really sad? It's it's I'm like good. horrifying. I'm, no thanks. I'm good. Oh my god, really? I'm not a big sad sad content person. But it is like animated. Yeah, I'm good. Mm-hmm. Action. I like action movies, foreshadowing, climaxes, <laughs> plot twists. I know, but the but like that is literally here. Like the summary for Watership Down, I feel like is so freaking similar. To... If it's important for Pat's book, I will watch it. Yeah. I will it's not like, complain. Th- this is, it's when a young rabbit named Fiverr has a prophetic vision that the end of his warren is near. Oh he goodness. persuades seven other rabbits to leave with him in search of a new home. Okay. And then Prophecy? they encounter, I like I like that. They encounter Fiction. obstacles. Yeah. They encounter obstacles. Okay. They encounter obstacles. <laughs> That's like every every book. It's like yeah. so. There's these guys. They get pro- They get uh, obstacles. Like, but like, okay. Like, look at that. Is the poster for it? Oh my okay. goodness! And the tagline. This is no joke. The tagline like reads: "All the world will be your enemy, prince with a thousand enemies, and when they catch you, they will kill you. But first, they must catch you." <laughs> and that, that is the tagline. That's a brutal tagline. That's Watership Down, Pat. That's Watership Down. Yeah, I was just but saying, I'm like, this already... is perfect. It, people ask, is Watership Down disturbing? <laughs> As a horror story, uh, every seemingly everyone who's seen the animated 1978 adaptation has a horror story about how disturbingly brutal and violent it was. This is understandable and ridiculous. It's a Let's story about rabbits. Yeah. Maybe so I've I, never watched it. I've watched I, the new one. This was a Centerpoint library classic that I used to rent all the time, mm. too. Mm. Anyway.